Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Devin Broly on the show, the assistant global beverage buyer for Whole Foods. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. So you're based in Texas and you work for Whole Foods. Yes. So I live and work at the global offices in Austin, but my position, I I really, I probably could live anywhere in the U.S., but because the global offices are here in Austin, this is where I'm located. And uh, yeah, I I love living in Austin. What's the day-to-day like for someone who works on global for Whole Foods? Okay. So globally, I'm the assistant global beverage buyer. I have a, a boss that I report to who's the global beverage buyer. The two of us work, we work basically, we say global, we have uh, stores in the UK and Canada. And Doug Bell, who's my boss and I, we uh, coordinate all the programming for all of the wine and beer for the country. And what that is for us is there's the two of us that work nationally. And then we have 11 regional buyers and then every single store has a wine specialist in it. So we coordinate a core list of items and we we do national programming with specific items. But then a lot of our job is coaching our regional buyers and connecting with our store specialists truly to inform the decisions that they're making at the store level to really highlight the unique sets that we have in all the stores and the personality of of the individual store and the individual buyer. So how do you divide it up? I mean, is it set up regionally? Where the- we take what we call a real regionalized approach to it. Again, Doug and I, we touch our programming accounts for about 40% of the overall sales of the company. And then we we like to provide the structure and the coaching for our regional buyers to fill in the blanks for another 40 to 50% of that programming. And with the idea that our, that our store buyers will have autonomy to make decisions for their individual stores. So we like to say that we influence all of the purchasing, uh, but we're directly responsible for just a portion of it. In terms of coaching the other buyers and the staff, what does that look like? Coaching the other buyers and the staff, like when, when we get together as a group, like for a national meeting, We'll taste through many uh, different items that we're considering for national placement, and we get the opinions of all the individual buyers for that placement. And then additionally, what we do is, so for example, if, if an individual set has a 1,000 SKUs or a 1,000 items in it, our purchasing globally would account for 300 of those items. And then our goal is to actually coach the the regional buyer to fill in the blanks on that for their individual sets. So a typical Rhone set might have 20 items in it. We would nationally, we would pick six items and then we would help create the structure for how many Cote de Rhone's, how many Cote de Rhone Villages, how many Gigandas, how many Rastaux, how many Chateauneuf de Pop they should be carrying in their set. And then we want to allow the decisions for individual SKUs up to the regional buyer with their input from their store buyers. So basically the people on the ground who are hearing from the customers get some input, but at the same time, you want to ensure some consistent quality across the market brand. Absolutely. Exactly. And what is your advice to them as they fill those other slots? What do you tell them? We ask them to be aware of pricing, of 
individuality. Um, we're actually really interested in making sure that they are selecting items that are authentic and I hesitate to say artisanal, but but truly speak to the place. Like what we really, our goal is to provide framework for them to really understand what the value of a great Cote de Rhone village would be or what a great Chateauneuf de Pop would be so they, that they can make those decisions on their own. And then the core list, why would you have a core list and what does it help do? We establish nationally, we need a value platform. So we really feel strongly that we have to be relevant on price. So yes, I mean, we carry $3 wines, $4 wines, $6 wines. And Doug and I have the only way to ensure the volume for that type of price point requires a a national type purchase. Someone who can make a single deal. A single deal for for tens of thousands of cases. And so those items fall squarely in our lap. And I joke about we we kiss a lot of frogs to get to get a few princes. Additionally, we on our core list, we have what we call comfort brands. So they're they're broad market brands, right? So, you know, not always the most exciting thing on the shelf or or the the new and flashy region or or thing, but you know, uh, a brand like Kendall Jackson or La Crema that we know that that our customers are looking for. And so we have those on our core list that, and we encourage our teams to sell those at the right price, like the right market retail. And then we also, you know, as, as the core list goes, we establish uh, distinctive or unique brands, wines that we source with partners, with importers or with supplier partners that are unique items to Whole Foods that we feel show exceptional value for the money really at any price point. I mean, that for us is not just the inexpensive side of the game. And, and our core list, we really, those unique items, we source to fill out the set because we really, our goal for a core list is to provide the nucleus for any department. So at Whole Foods, we have stores that only have about 350 items on the shelf. We have stores that have more than 2,000 items on the shelf. And so the idea for us is that we provide the nucleus for the small set that if they carry everything, that they're, they're filling all the boxes and they're providing all of the necessary wines for the average customer who has the, an expectation based on the smaller set. And then that that same list of items provides a nucleus, even if it only accounts for 10 or 15% of an overall department, that it provides a nucleus that the larger department can work around for, you know, and, and create something exciting and interesting around that. So it sounds like the core list development is both trying to give that consumer who wants to find a certain thing, the guarantee that they're going to find that thing. Yeah. And at the same time, give the consumer who wants to find something unique, that thing that you've sourced. Yeah. So I really, I truly believe that we can be all things to all people. And so we source wines to fill the $3 a bottle wine niche. And then we source wines that we feel are indicative of, and this is where our unique and distinctive brands come in. We, we source wines that we feel are unique and indicative of a region and a grape variety. You know, we have a unique label Chianti Classico that tastes like Sangiovese from Chianti, right? We have Pinot Grigio from Friuli that does the same thing. And, and then... We really, again, and this is where we come back to, we establish that core list, but then for the cool and groovy or the unique items, we really rely on the regional buyers and the, and the stores to source items that they love, you know? So we want to give the customer who wants to spend $3, we want them to be able to. The customer that wants to spend 200 we want them to be able to do it too. So how many stores are we talking about globally for wine? So we have over 400 stores total and about 300 of them sell wine. So outside of size, are those stores somewhat organized on the same lines? Like, are they, is the build out the same? So yeah, all of our stores are set up primarily the same way. We have 10 different departments, produce, seafood, specialty, which is where beer and wine lives, meat, prepared foods. I mean, all of our stores have all of those elements and all of those elements more or less end up in the same ratio from store to store. So what we have in our wine stores 
what we have, you know, in the 300 or so wine stores, what we have is a real opportunity for a customer to shop for wine with dinner in their basket. What do you find when people do that? Someone who's shopping for dinner and wine, is that a different customer than say someone shopping for wine just at a standalone wine store? Or is it a different customer than the person going to a restaurant and asking for wine? There's a good and bad to everything, right? So in our store, we have the luxury of people shopping for wine when they're shopping for dinner. So they already know what they're what they're looking for for dinner, or they already have a wine selection in mind and they come to us because they know we have it and they, they can then shop for dinner to pair with that. And so that is an advantage that we have over a standalone retail wine shop or liquor store. What I find really interesting about our interaction and what is most fascinating for me about retail is that very few customers, even at Whole Foods, where we pride ourselves on customer service, we know that very few customers want to interact with a team member when they're shopping. And so while if you go to a restaurant for dinner, you, first of all, one has the expectation that they're going to choose their dinner from the options that are available. So whether it's their dinner or their wine selection, that there's a list of, there's a menu for the food and there's a list for the wine that they, they know they have to choose from. And then you absolutely, at a restaurant, you absolutely have to talk to somebody to get what you want, to, to place your order. And so there's a, there's a waiter there that, is, that has the opportunity to explain the menu, to explain the wine, and to help you sort of coach you through that, right? Whereas in retail, first of all, your customer is shopping for dinner while they're, they might choose their wine selection. But they're also, their expectation, first of all, is, or their expectation is that they can find what they're looking for, that there may not be a specific menu in mind, but they have an idea of what food they're going to eat, what wine they would like, and, and their expectations are different when they come in. And then they don't have to talk to somebody in order to get the wine that they may be looking for. And so we really do try to provide a department and a selection, no matter what size, that will appeal to the customer base. And sometimes that's a comfort brand, and sometimes that's something cool and groovy and unique and different. And so what we really, what we we try to do with our core list is to provide that base. And then with our programming, we get a little out there. So we just recently did a wines from Portugal program where, I mean, we had, you know, white blend and we had an Albarino and we had a, you know, several red blends and wines from the Douro and wines that aren't on every customer shopping list. But when they walk by a display, a beautifully merchandised display of something that's an awesome value and that our team members are really passionate about that they might pick up. And so that's part of it too. I guess that that sounds a lot like, hey, we want to make sure that there's basic tomato and basil sauce in the pasta section, but we also want some funky pesto that's a little bit different and maybe not what most people are looking for, but the person who is looking for is going to be psyched to find it. Absolutely. Absolutely. We feel like, I feel like we can be all things to all people. Like we can give them the meat and potatoes if that's what they want. And then if they're looking to branch out a little bit, we've got options and we, we have specialists in our stores that want them to branch out that really are, are most passionate about helping somebody find something that's off the beaten track. When people so. come in and apply for the job, you see that a, a lot. You see people who want to break new ground. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, we're a culture that really champions that. At, this, at an individual store, right? It's, it's a, you know, a little bit of a double-edged sword when it comes to an individual wine specialist who is super passionate about an individual region. That's a good coaching moment for us to keep in mind and help a specialist understand that there is a, a structure in place for a department. And if it's, if you use the, the thousand item department, if a specialist loves Italian wines, we encourage them to be experimental and excited about their Italian set 
but not to make Italian wines 50% of the overall SKU count. So when someone's shopping at Whole Foods, does that bring a certain experience to how they might approach wine? Like, does the Whole Foods brand or the Whole Foods being inside a store sort of affect how people choose wine later? I do believe that our base customer has a higher expectation for the quality that they're going to receive from everything that they get when they buy Whole Foods. Like they, they really are buying the, the Whole Foods experience and they can trust that our, our seafood is sustainably sourced and that our meat is compassionately raised. And so when they're shopping for wine in one of our departments, there is an expectation that the quality in the bottle is absolutely going to deliver. And so, yeah, I think that, that our customers definitely do come with a higher expectation. And it's, it's one of the things that's really fascinating for me and for us. And one of the reasons why we work so diligently to provide awesome value. I mean, again, to be relevant on price, but to, to really, you know, we, we taste a lot of wines to find what we really think over delivers. So, yeah, no, I, I think that our customers definitely come with a, with a, a deeper knowledge of what they're looking for and a higher expectation. It's interesting to deal with a core list that's nationwide and even more than that, because I imagine that that not only gives you a sense of what works in every location, like this is popular throughout the whole country. Right. It also gives you a sense of regional differences. Like, oh, I knew this was flying off the shelf more in Raleigh. And then this other thing was really big in Austin and Santa Fe you must receive data that looks like what people drink in America. Absolutely. And, you know, an obvious one is that our stores in Portland, Oregon, and Seattle sell a ton of wine from the Pacific Northwest. 30% of their overall sales are Pacific Northwest wines, right? And so, yeah, if we had this top-down standardized approach, we would never capture the passion of the consumers in that region, right? Uh, a less obvious one is that, for me anyway, is that folks in Florida drink a lot of champagne, right? And so leaving leaving our sets, not you know being so standardized, but leaving our sets open to the opportunity for our regional buyers to to make some decisions that are unique to their individual markets is absolutely a it's a big part of it. I would also. I would add that sometimes though, too, we get uh, what, what I call the magic zip code where a, a store in, in Houston says, oh, our, our customers don't drink Chardonnay. And it's like, uh, we have data to say that that's not true. So where, again, it's part of what we do nationally is to you know, coach and provide that structure and, and make people aware of when things get off track and where they're doing something really awesome. Because at that level, it's probably hard to go off the anecdotal. It's probably better to go off yeah, it's impossible. Sales data. Yes, yes. And so and and again, that's for the that's for the big ticket items and that's where we manage a category to ensure that we have the highest potential for success of the overall category so that we can actually see where people are having fun and really, you know, one of the things that managing that, you know, a core selection like that does is it takes care of the basics, the basic blocking and tackling, so that it actually clears the field for us to see where somebody's doing something that is causing a positive effect. We just, in last year, in the spring of last year, we did a huge rosé promotion. And last year was, I mean, that was the year that it really sort of hit, like rosé 2014, I mean, you know, folks on the coasts have had heard it for a couple of years, but 2014 was where Rosé really became like it. And we saw that early enough in 2013 to be able to do the, a, a huge program nationally because our Southern California region had done two super successful spring programs in 2012 and 2013. So that's where that comes in for us. And that's like one of the most fascinating things for me in my role nationally or globally is when we see a trend start 
at a smaller scale in an individual region. And then we actually nationally are able to scale it up, right? Take it from the individual store or the individual region and maybe the following you know, season, take it to another region or another two regions. And then w- within you know, 12 to 18 months, we scale it into a national program. And that, that's, really, that's really cool. You have a system where you have hundreds of stores and mm-hmm. they all have a base similarity. And the things that are different about each can be measured. And if someone's developed a program because they're listening to their guests or because they have an intuition or because they see a good value, you can take those strong results, which are measurable by sales, and say, huh, maybe we're on to something with what they're doing at this store or stores. Let's roll this out across the country. That is perfectly stated. I wish I, wish I, I, wish I had stated it like that. Yeah, it's exactly, it's exactly right. In a way, that gives you the kind of data that I think a lot of writers would guess at and be like, hey, this trend seems to be taken off, but you're actually seeing sales data. Are there times where you're reading about something and you think, I don't know, I don't, I, I don't see that in the stores, or are there times where you're not reading about something and you see it all the time in the stores? This is, it's funny that you bring that up because you know, just yesterday or this morning, uh, I read an article about Chenin Blanc making a comeback. And sometimes we're actually way ahead of the trend. So a few years ago, we did a national deal on a Chenin Blanc that we just thought was going to be gangbusters and it didn't really work out so well for us. And, and so we were like, oh man, we, we really thought it was going to be there. And here we are three or four years later and it's like, this could, this could hit, right? This could now be it. And, and so sometimes that happens. And then sometimes we'll see something, whether it's even just an individual item Right, like um, it felt like, or it feels like something like you know the prisoner red blend. That that was something that our wine specialists jumped on and really believed in years ago. And we really, I, I don't want to say that we built the market for it. That's not true. Um, th- but that, clearly, there is now a market. There is now a market. Everyone and, would agree. And and I believe we're we sell more as a as a national retailer. We sell more of that than anyone else. And it's those are the types of things that we see early on. And it ha- it it happens for lack of a better term. It happens organically because we allow for some autonomy in individual stores and regions when something starts to become noticed, I do think that as a retailer, uh, there's not another retailer nationally that is as nimble as we are as it relates to some of those trends. Are you in all 50 states? We're not in all 50 states. I believe, I, I believe that we have stores that sell wine in 41 markets, I think, maybe 42. And are there times where you say, wow, that's blowing up in zip code X, Y, and Z, but maybe that's just going to be X, Y, and Z. Maybe that's the wine culture of that place, or maybe that's the income level of that place. And I just don't know if it's going to go nationwide. Not so much other than like the general trends that we see in terms of, again, you know, Pacific Northwest or California wines being obviously higher sales in California, European wines being a much higher percentage of our sales on the East Coast, on the, you know, in, in New York and New England, more so, more so we see, and, and I'm just sort of positive by nature, but more so we see individual items that catch on in a couple of spots and then we can't get authorized and, and we can't get enough of fast enough. We see way more instances where someone loves Miraval Rosé and gets really excited about it. And in 48 hours, we're able to turn around projections and commitments from all of our regions for 3,000 cases so that we can be the prominent, the most prominent retailer. You could take a stake. You could take a position and go in deep on it. Yeah. And, And rarely... Rarely do we look at something nationally that has had success in an individual spot 
and think to ourselves, you know what? We're, we don't think that's going to work. It nationally. was just a one-off. It was just a one-off. We more so, we try it. We're like, wow, if this was great in this region, we'll try it. And it's through, I mean, and sometimes we have crazy successes and sometimes, sometimes we have some failure uh, around that, but it's always interesting. And it's always, I mean, uh, what I love about our, what I really, really love about our regions is when there is something that has had success in one spot, everyone's game to try it. But at the same time, I guess, functionally with the different laws in different states and then different distributors in different states who may have different portfolios, you may find it difficult to go nationwide on things that maybe aren't in every state. No, that's very true. And so what sometimes happens is we'll have an individual region that's hot on a wine that really, really loves it. And that wine just isn't available nationwide, right? And it actually, it, it sometimes works to our detriment nationally because it's tough for us within that same category. It's tough for us to get buy-in on a brand that is available nationally or on a unique item that we do want to sell nationally when an individual region is having so much success with something else. And so, yeah, that's absolutely, that absolutely happens. And that's part of what is, son las cosas bonitas del amor. It's, it's, it's the, those are the beautiful little things about love. And, and those are the beautiful little things about, about our culture at Whole Foods is, you know, sometimes that happens, right? And, and sometimes we'll have, you know, a national deal that's available everywhere. The, the West Coast will buy in huge and the South will buy in huge and Chicago's not so hot on it because they have a, an item that they've been working with that is only available in the Midwest and they're, they're in love with it. Uh, more frequently though, what happens is Midwest finds an item that they're absolutely in love with. It fills a need for them, but we look at it and say, wow, this could fill a need nationally. And we're able to scale it and all the other regions jump on board. So, so in effect, you're the assistant global buyer and, and you have a small team. But in reality, you have all of these buyers and all of these ears and eyes and all of these states kind of like trying to find the next thing that's going to go the wine equivalent of viral, right? Yeah, that's a great way to put it. And it, it, it yes, it absolutely, it doesn't come without some of its frustrations when based on our experience or based on my experience, we find something that is great and we want everybody to carry it and some of our regions balk, right? But way more times than not, where that exciting thing is and what we find has come out of the region or a store. So yeah, I mean, exactly what you said. We have 300 points of entry where something, the next big thing could end up in our stores. And do you find that it's most valuable to you to stay in Austin or are you often on the road meeting with different people in different locations? Yeah, so there's obviously a fair amount of administrative work that comes with the role of organizing programming for the country. So about 50% of my time is spent in the office in Austin and I think to good effect. And then about 50% of my time is spent on the road with that split pretty evenly between visiting the regions and the stores to get a sense for what they're doing on a daily basis, what they need from us to, to check in on programming and just to just basically to, to check in and get FaceTime with our, with our buyers and our stores. And then the other, the, the last 25% of my travel is visiting our producers and our suppliers. So it's, we actually go to Aspen Food and Wine. We do quite a bit of business with our domestic suppliers in the days leading up to Aspen Food and Wine, most of our large suppliers are there anyway. And it provides, you know, Aspen is a magical place and it feels like everybody's comes to the table with a clearer head and more ideas. Um, it's, it's like Camp David for wine professionals. It's Yeah, it's way better than meeting in some low-ceilinged, conference room in Austin, right? So yeah, it's cool. It's cool. And that provides you with one-stop shopping. Like you don't have to drive from winery to winery in California to visit producer, you know, and take the half hour, the hour, the hour and a half to get to winery to winery. You can be in Aspen and go from booth to booth or room to room. Right. And we, and we certainly do take trips to individual wine regions and we meet with individual producers. Absolutely. But yeah, I mean, 
when we're covering the ground that we have to cover, a lot of it, you know, we get a lot of work done in Aspen. It sounds like sometimes you see something's going to blow up. You're like, yes, not only do I have a feeling this is going to blow up, not only has there been a feeling on the part of a regional buyer that this was going to blow up, but the sales say it's going to blow up. I want the 10,000 cases. And there's probably times where it's like, oh, there's only a thousand available. And I bet going and having direct relationships with producers where you've shook hands before and shared a beverage allows you to go to them and say, hey, if there are another two thousand, we'd love to have it because that's just sales we know we can make. Absolutely. And the the power of the relationship in the wine business goes back eons, right? And it's, it's the truth. It, I think that that relationship has evolved quite a bit over the years, but it really is. I mean, the, the suppliers and the producers with whom we have deep relationships and we ha- have already made the connection and who have provided us with great wine in the past and who have been a win and who have been over backwards to help us when we needed them to produce more of an item or to get a better cost on something, right? Those are invaluable to us doing business. And I guess to put it another way, we don't just purchase. It's not transactional for us at Whole Foods. It's, it's, it's never about transaction, individual transactions. You know, even with our largest purchases, we, we really believe in the relational element of it. And that has, that definitely, definitely helps, you know, because again, when we, we thought we we've got an item coming for the holidays that we didn't think our producer said, yeah, but I, I can't make more than 2,500 cases total of this. And our stores came back with 4,000 case commitment. Right. And the producer, I mean, he didn't get 4,000 cases, but he was able to get us another 500 cases of the, of the wine, which we really feel is going to, it's going to meet our needs for the, for the holidays. So that's one of those scenarios where, if we didn't have that relationship, if we were just, if it was solely transactional and it was only about the dollars and cents and the bottom line, and it was only about that, then he wouldn't have near the incentive to actually find the wine for us. I think a lot of times the thought about the role of the sommelier is that they break unheard of wines into the market, right? They provide a platform for new wines that no one's ever heard of to get on lists and into minds. What is the winery that benefits the most from nationwide retail? Is it the winery that has a brand that wants to make it a bigger brand? Is it a winery that wants to find more name recognition across the United States? Who really benefits on the producer level from saying, hey, I want to be in Whole Foods and I want to make a large commitment to that? If I understand the question correctly, and I think I do, that where we've seen the biggest, I guess, win-win partnership is with bringing new things to market. And so when we launch a product, we do it in a measured way. And it's not, I mean, this is, we're a big company, but we're still only 300 stores. So we can launch a product with a few thousand cases that some retailers would need tens or hundreds of thousands of cases to launch. So you know, some of our biggest success stories are with a small co-op in Ribeiro del Duero that was discovered by an importer and had never been in the U.S. before. And they launched their $10 Ribeiro del Duero Hoven as part of one of our programs, right? And, and the commitment that we made to the 5,000 cases that we purchased was enough influx of money for them to actually modernize their equipment to build their brand to the 25,000 cases or 30,000 cases that they needed and, and wanted to build it too, right? And that's the best possible thing for us. Like when we can, the, with the size that we are, we know that the commitments that we make to some of these suppliers are initial commitments to get them into the market with the total understanding that this isn't going to be exclusive to us forever, that they want to grow and we want them to grow. You know, it's it's... Just about the time that some of these guys grow to a level that they no longer need us exclusively is the time when 
I mean, we have short attention spans at Whole Foods and our specialists and our buyers want to be moving on to something else too. So, But arguably also the customer has a short attention span, right? Yeah, yeah, Today, I believe it. Arguably. Yeah, of course, of course. And so, you know, some there are items that have you know, lifespans on our shelves that we're, we're happy to see. We're happy. We're ecstatic when a, a small producer is able to expand organically and grow their business to a place where they no longer need us exclusively. So you started out not at the level you're at now. You've been promoted several times within mm-hmm. the company over many years. Yeah. And you, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> congratulations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot longer than I, than I thought. So when you started and you worked sales on the floor, a guy who stocks the shelves, guy who answers questions from customers, what was valuable for you to remember at that time that you now share with those people when you go and talk with them at the stores? When I started at Whole Foods, I started just as a team member on the, on the wine floor, right? Before I became a, a beer buyer and then a wine specialist and then an assistant manager of a department and everything. And so from a sales perspective, the most valuable thing that I learned, and I, I feel like I just learned this through trial and error, um, but one of the things I love, I still love to do it, is I don't ever ask anybody if they're looking for something to buy or if I can help them find anything. And it's, it's a very, it's a nuanced approach, I know. But I really, um, and I, sadly, I don't get an opportunity to be on a, a sales floor as much as I, as I would love. I mean, I'm a, I'm a retail junkie at heart. And if I could make my millions selling wine on, on a retail floor, I would absolutely do it. And the reality is I'm, I'm probably never going to make my millions, but. Um, I, I haven't ruled it out yet. You seem like you've encountered a lot of success. <laughs> okay, well, thank you. But um, I will say that to get back to the point, I, when I'm on a, on a retail floor, simply asking somebody how they're doing, how they're enjoying their shopping experience, um, it, sounds, it, it's, it sounds corny or cheesy, but truly to connect with that customer, I find out things that, yeah, I mean, they, they frequently lead to the sale of a bottle of wine, but it's more important than that. It's, it's the establishment of a connection. It takes the, the, the interaction from transactional to relational and emotional, and it's awesome. Um, and we've, we've had fun with it over the years with, you know, new store openings and with, with trainings and things. It's like, see, see if you can provide awesome customer service without ever asking anybody if you can help them find something, right? And it's shocking how many times you just ask somebody how their day is going. And when you first approach them, they immediately say, oh, no, 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 I'm not looking for anything. And to, to turn that into, are you enjoying your shopping experience? How do you like this new store? You know, that, that turns into, you know what? I, I was looking for a bottle of wine or I was looking for this specific label. And that, that to me is, that's just, that's just a lot of fun. I mean, it's, it's great. It's great. So it sounds like you guys have taken a lot of regional knowledge and made it nationwide knowledge in terms of it was working. We, rolled it out to all the stores in terms of the selections. Mm-hmm. But have you also done that in terms of layout and build out of the stores? Have you said, you know what? It works to have these kind of wines in front. It works to have counters like this. It works to have the register like this. Absolutely. We're in a constant state of evolution. And so whether it's layout, whether it's actual organization within that layout, whether it's the place in the store where the department lives, whether it's the fixtures that the wines are on. And there, I have all kinds of examples of, you know, we, we used to use across the company, we used to use racks that were lay down racks. And then one region moved to uh, warehouse shelving that gave a, you know, just a, a, a more sort of raw, look and feel and and you could see the bottles more clearly displayed and then we turned over almost all of our stores into this sort of matix and 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 warehouse shelving sort of looks to the influx of bars in all of our stores not not all of our stores um let me correct that the we have about 300 stores that sell wine and about 110 
bars. And, and that was an individual store that had an individual idea that they were, they were allowed to do it. They fa- determined that legally they were allowed to, to serve wine and beer by the glass in the store and just took a chance that they were going to actually put a, a real live bar into the store. And that met with such success. You know, the fact that a customer could buy a glass of wine and walk around and shop with it or have a glass of wine before or after their shop that we now have it in almost half of our of our stores and so those types of things we've absolutely seen grow so those are all real positive examples where you saw something work and then you rolled it out and Mm -hmm. it worked over and over again right have there been times where an idea came up it didn't work and you saw that idea come up over and over again and you had to say hey you know we tried that idea back in such and such year and it just didn't play and we need you to to keep that in mind yeah you know we're we're again constant evolution constant change um ideas come up all the time that we've seen happen before sometimes though an idea is just before it's time right what more frequently happens is we have we have an idea we implement it in a store there is a machine called an enomatic machine sure. right we had this idea we thought this is going to be a great idea we're going to put it in our stores and we put it in one store, but in our system, and, and we're opening stores at such a fast rate that we had it designed into 10 stores before we realized, the, before we had the data from the first few stores to say, this isn't the best idea. And so that more frequently happens where an idea, it feels like the right thing to do and it's it gets a lot of energy and it maybe even comes out of the gates really strong. And then we've designed it into stores at such a, at such a rate that we don't have, we haven't had the sufficient time to sort of to really test it. But part of the beauty of constant change is that, you know, we try something, it doesn't work, we adjust. And so what we don't do is let something like that languish in a store for, for too long before we pull it out and we make that we make those changes but yeah that definitely happens so a lot of stores is there like a mothership store or a flagship store you know the queen store well to me the king bee is the store the downtown location uh the lamar location in downtown austin uh that's it's the store right below our global headquarters it's where I really cut my teeth and the, the store that I feel most connected to. But I will say that every one of our large metros has at least one flagship or go-to store, whether it's you know LA or Chicago or New York. Every, every region has a few large metropolitan areas that have at least one mothership for that region and i would imagine that as you've been there a few years you've seen whole foods have to respond to economic ups and downs in the larger society sure sure yeah so uh 2007 was a good example of that you know when we opened when we opened the lamar store in 2005 we had drc on the shelf and by sort of late 2007 man that that was that was there was a downturn that affected all of us and that was the moment that we really recognized that we didn't have a value platform so that was when we we sourced this a wine that we sell for at the time it was it was two dollars it's called three wishes and and uh it's now uh, about three dollars in most of our markets but that was an absolutely a response to economic times and that was really the the impetus for what we now refer to as our value platform. And we have dozens of SKUs, dozens of, of individual items that are, you know, $7 and under that we source nationally that we're able to, to get the pricing on with the volume that we commit to that are, you know, in our top sellers across the country. But that was absolutely a response to that. Do those types of value offerings and a value platform, does that help? dispel the notion that Whole Foods is an expensive place to shop? 
you know, I, I hope so. I hope so. Um, it's, I, I really, you know, it, it's, I personally want to, when, when we're selecting wines, I want every wine that we select to over deliver for the price. And there's a reality there. And there certainly was in 2007. And it's still, it's still true is that there's a reality that there is an element now it's, it's changing now, but the re, there's a reality that is value as cheap, not as much value as well quality for the price. It's easier to convince somebody that the $5 bottle of wine they're purchasing over delivers for the price than the $20 bottle of wine they're purchasing over delivers for the price. And, and now I say that that's changing because we, we definitely right now, our highest growth and, and where I think the best value, the true value, the, the value as quality for price exists for us is in the 15 to $25 range. And our customers are, are asking for those wines. So, um, you've seen that ceiling in a way go up because I think traditionally the ceiling's like 20 bucks for retail, right? Yeah, no, it's, it's around 90% of our sales are under $25, but that the 15 and, and yes, the ceiling has gone up from what the customer looking for the under $10 bottle is now looking for the under $12 bottle. The customer that was looking for a 12 to $15 bottle is now looking for the 15 to $20 bottle. And when, when an individual wine has attributes, when it, when it, I don't want to say it has a story because it's not just about the story. It's, it's a, when it has an authentic story, then our customers who are looking for quality and transparency and authenticity are willing to spend up to $25 for that for sure. I mean, we see it, we see it in the numbers. Definitely. What's the difference between Whole Foods as a, a grocer that sells wine and other grocers that sell wine? Because there are, you know, there are other companies that sell food at retail and they sell wine. What's the difference between those companies and Whole Foods? I think the difference is our regionalized approach and the fact that we have a, we have a specialist in every store. And they are primarily responsible for customer service and education, but they also have a real deep hand in product selection, right? And so for us, I think that, I mean, when I look at other retailers and, and when, more specifically, when I look at other grocery stores, because that's really the category that we're in, I don't think anybody dedicates the, the manpower to the expertise, to, to manning the floor with team members and, and having those team members actually be passionate and knowledgeable about the wines that we sell, I don't think anybody does a better job than we do. And if I were a young person, mm -hmm. super young, I'm just turned of age, and okay. I'm thinking, I want a job in the wine business, what is the benefit to me to go work for Whole Foods? I mean, what is the great part about that job? If I'm listening to this interview and I'm like, huh, I wonder what kind of job I should do. Maybe I should be a sommelier. Maybe I should go into distribution. Maybe I should work for standalone retail. What is it that is going to say, yeah, Whole Foods is a great idea? Yeah, you know, for me, I started in the restaurant business. And what eventually brought me to Whole Foods was I did the math on what I was making at a shift in a restaurant and how variable that was based on whether or not I was cut early or I had a good section or a terrible section or whatever. And I realized very quickly that with my starting, with a starting salary at Whole Foods, my hours were consistent. <laughs> And my pay was consistent and I had benefits. And more importantly for me, the restaurants in which I was working did not have intensely deep wine lists, right? And depending upon where you are in the country, I think that there's a very small percentage of restaurants that truly do have deep wine lists. I mean, typically you're talking around 100 items, right? And even our smallest store has 300 selections. And so for me, it was an opportunity because I, I mean, I started as a, I went from being a restaurant manager to being a team member selling wine on the floor at Whole Foods for the starting salary, the starting wage at Whole Foods with, I'm dating myself, but it was seven bucks an hour. And for, for me, the opportunity to work 
with at the time I was, this was my first job with Whole Foods was in Durham, North Carolina. And we had 450 selections on the shelf. And that was three times the largest wine list that I had ever worked with before. And so when I looked at it, I was like, I, I'm working full time. I've got a, an hourly wage that, that is adequate for the work I'm doing. I got health benefits and I got a chance to work with all these wines that I, I just wouldn't get to work with if I were working in a restaurant. So that's that for me, it was a sort of a leap of faith because there's that element of working in the restaurant business that was more comfortable for me. But that transition, I mean, if, for me, I, th- I thought it was the best thing. The best decision I made in my career was to go to work for Whole Foods. And where are the opportunities for growth for the wine side on Whole Foods in the future? Right now, we have a little over 400 stores total and 300 of them sell wine. That ratio will continue to be about the same until new states or until states start to sort of lift the restrictions that they have. But over the next 15 years, our plan is to build to 1,200 stores. So, uh, and the other piece within Whole Foods is if you are motivated and have the right attitude, there are always opportunities to move up and over and around. And, and you can get in in one department and move to another department. And if, you are tr- if one is truly passionate about wine and starts in a smaller store, one can move to a larger store very quickly and then a larger store even more quickly. And then if, if one has the motivation and the ambition can move into being an assistant team leader and then a team leader and then eventually into a regional buyer role, that was absolutely the trajectory that I took. I mean, it, over the, the 10 plus years that I've been with the company, every couple of years, I felt like I was ready for a new challenge. And lo and behold, every couple of years, the new challenge was there and presented itself for me to move up. And it feels like it's the company that if you said, hey, you know, my wife is from Dallas and I want to go move with my wife to Dallas from another place, it's the company that you could probably do that within the company. Yeah, very easily. People transfer all the time. Now, you don't always move into a one-for-one scenario, right? But yeah, I mean, if, if you have a job and you're in good standing in one region or in one metro and you want to move to another one, there's always, there's always a position, always. So one of the things that you hear a lot about is the challenge or the complementary markets of wine and beer. Sometimes people say, well, some of that lower end market for wine has gravitated towards higher end market for beer. People buying craft beer instead of lower wine. And sometimes you hear this rumor. Yeah, no, I think that's a fair trade-off. Now, what I think, and this is all unsubstantiated like theory on my part, right? But what I think is currently happening is the artisanal and craft beers, yes, maybe there are some elements of the lower end wine market, people moving to that craft beer. But I also think, and and this is true, it bears out in the numbers with the premium beer category, that those craft beer customers are also moving from, they're no longer drinking the light beer. They're moving into craft beer, right? And so if the same thing bears out that typically bears out, which is folks, they start off with beer and they eventually gravitate to wine. I think that that is going to continue to happen. The average craft beer drinker may still continue to drink more craft beer than the light beer drinker that moves to wine, but they're going to move to wine. And when they do, they are going to have a deeper level of knowledge and they're going to have less inhibition and they're going to be more educated about just the nuance that exists in beverage anyway, right? And so they are going to come to wine with a much deeper understanding and a vocabulary than the typical light beer drinker that moves to wine. And so to that end, we are going to see more educated, less 
what is the word? I'm, they're, they're not going to be nearly as afraid. Like that's the one thing that we continue to see and not so much with the new generation, but with, you know, the older generation is we continue to see the customer that says, well, I don't know that much about wine or I don't know how to talk about wine or, or wine is so intimidating, right? That's the word I'm looking for. It's, it's, they're not going to be nearly as intimidated. And so these craft, these people who are currently cutting their teeth and know how to describe the floral and citrus aromas of IPA, right? When they move to wine, they're already going to have a vocabulary. They're going to be more courageous, less intimidated, and we're going to be there. Like the wine, wine will continue to grow. But so. when you look at the numbers in a store, mm -hmm. which category is growing faster? Craft beer or any category in wine nationwide? Craft beer is growing faster than any category in wine, no question not growing as fast for us as spirits, in fact, and partially because spirits is a new thing for us. And so we're seeing a lot of just initial like stores that didn't have spirits last year now have spirits, right? But yes, craft beer is still continuing to grow, but it's not growing at the same rate that it did in 2012, 13, and 14. And wine is starting to pick up again. You know, part of Part of, I think, what has happened across the country, at least in retail, is there is a beverage department. No matter what store you go into, there is a beverage department. And that beverage department doesn't grow any bigger. And so when something like craft beer becomes really exciting and we dedicate more space to merchandising craft beer, by extension and definition, we extend less space, we have less space for wine. And so I think part of that growth in beer at the expense of wine in every retailer has been related to just simply less linear footage of wine. And so as the craft beer category fleshes out, as wine, and wine is sort of, that's the old standard, like it's just the 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 safe bet and the, the, you know, the old guard, so to speak. Right. But as that, I mean, we still sell three times as much wine as we do beer, even with the growth of beer. And I really do think that we're going to see those level out and, uh, you know, craft beer, the, the exciting thing for me in beverage as a whole is that beer and spirits are finally in the game right? Like there's finally resources being dedicated to producing honest and exciting, complex products, right? And so I, I'm happy to see a little bit of space be dedicated, like to be sort of reallocated from wine into beer and spirits for sure. One thing that I've seen when I've talked to specialty retailers and restaurant sommeliers is it feels like for some of the real big ticket items especially the demand seller age that market is often moving to retail from restaurants because the restaurant markups add so much to that big ticket item and also the restaurants are hesitant to buy wine that they are somewhat obliged to sit on for 10 years before they can sell it because who knows if the restaurant's going to be there even in two years. Sure. And so sometimes you see retailers with strong moves on selling high-end burgundy with selling certain high-end wines that are maybe in a way sort of priced out of the reach of a lot of restaurants now. Is Whole Foods looking at that market or is that money on the table for someone else? We're not currently playing in that arena, but I never, never want to leave something off the table. I would never want to take anything off the table. Right. And it's interesting that you bring that up because I, I had never thought about it that way, that the higher, the highest end of the spectrum is now pricing itself in restaurants. It's pricing itself out of the market with, with the margins that they're charging or the markups that they're charging. And with the transparency that is now available with the internets, right? The Googles, our customers can absolutely recognize, they, they absolutely, they have access to the value of that wine in spades, right? And so it's an interest, that's an interesting point that you bring up, Levy. And, and to bring it 
back to where we were talking about something that was like, oh yeah, we tried that and it didn't work. We don't want to try that, right? Like pre-2007, we had a bunch of those big ticket items in some of our stores and in mostly in flagship locations. So that's not something that would be in every single store, but in, in our marquee stores in Austin and Chicago and New York and LA and San Francisco, we had big ticket items, man. We were selling first growth Bordeaux and Cristal Rosé and, and I certainly wouldn't discount or I, I wouldn't say that we wouldn't go back to that. That's food for thought for me, for sure, for sure. Because our, I mean, our customers are, again, I mean, they're, they're coming to Whole Foods because they know our commitment to quality. And so there is a percentage and a portion of our customers that expect us to have the highest quality at whatever the price too. Devin Broly, he's the assistant global wine and beverage buyer for Whole Foods, and he has food for thought and wine for food. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Levy. Devin Broly of Whole Foods. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Skella has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.